Hi, and welcome to Innovate by Design, the podcast that interviews experts in design and innovation on topics that matter to you. This podcast is a joint effort of members of the DTX and design and business community in collaboration with the Center for Business Innovation at Chalmers University of Technology, Sweden. In this first season, we are going to explore how to make design and innovation work inside large organizations. This is episode two. I'm Ingo Raud, and with me today is Tobias Hauk, head of the Design and Co-Innovation Center at SAP. In my interview with Tobias, we will talk about how an initial failure led to a viral spread of design thinking at SAP, how to work with design thinking in a business-to-business setting, and what working in a zoo has to do with working in large organizations. So I hope you are going to enjoy my conversation with Tobias Hauk. Hi, Toby. Nice to have you on the show. Hi, Ingo. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I hope your cold isn't too bad, though. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> the summer is coming, so uh, instead of the Game of Thrones winter is coming, summer is already here, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Great. So I'm looking forward to hear a little bit more about design and design thinking at SAP. But before we get there, Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you get to SAP and what is your current role? How I got to SAP is quite an interesting story because I am probably uh, personified a a multidisciplinary person because I actually studied biochemistry uh, because I wanted to work in a zoo. So my first job was actually in a zoo. Um, And between being at a zoo and coming to SAP, Uh, In Germany 12 years ago, I worked as a consultant, as a geneticist, um, and as a uh, salesperson. So I was quite uh, all over the board, uh, learned quite a lot. Uh, Probably the most uh, valuable learning experiences actually did happen very early on when I was working in a zoo. But now since I've uh, joined SAP 12 years ago in their headquarters in Waldorf, Germany, Um, I've been a designer and a design manager, really responsible for mentoring environments and conditions so that design can happen in a highly global, highly complex uh, situation. So wait, let us pause it for a second. You just said you had the most valuable lesson working in a zoo. So what do you take from a zoo to an organization like SAP? (laughs) Uh, Aside from the typical jokes of working in a zoo, um, there is a high amount of empathy required while working with animals because they are not uh, capable of speaking to you like other humans will, um, but you have to very much understand and observe behaviors, um, which I would say is a very high level um, skill set that's also required uh, in designing uh, in a user and human-centered way is that empathy, um, that observing, listening, feeling aspects that sometimes uh, get lost within our processes and our uh, more regular, rigorous work. So you said you learned these kind of lessons working in a zoo, but how did SAP got there? Where did they learn their lessons and where did they get the knowledge from? 
I think um, probably anybody listening to this uh, who is also part of a larger organization understands it when I when I say the larger, the more successful, the more global a organization becomes, the more complex and the more distance it becomes from the people who are actually using the thing that you're producing. So in SAP's case, we were starting to create highly successful, highly complex software that ran most of the world's economies and companies. Um, and by doing so, we were dealing with such a huge complexity that the feeling for that individual user at the end of the day was slowly getting lost. And this is something that Hazo Plotner realized um, about 12 years ago. And Hazo Plotner was both a founder of SAP um, and at that point also, I believe, the chairman of our board. But he's also somebody that through his generous donations also brought design thinking on the world stage through uh, creating the D school first in Stanford and then later in Potsdam. Mm -hmm. And what was the support of this donation and the learnings that might have come from that kind of environment on the organization? Were there some immediate effects? It started off with with Hasso creating a team called the DST, the design services team, that reported directly to him. Um, and this was a cross-functional team that really jumped into any of the complex problems that um, that Hasso saw um, within SAP at the, at the time. So these were uh, people who were built um, and trained as design thinkers um, who brought their knowledge to internal projects um, within SAP globally. So when you say trained, uh, who trained them? They were trained uh, initially, I believe, through the D School in Stanford, um, as well as coming into SAP and doing um, uh, real actual projects with customers themselves. So taking that extra step of interpreting what they learned in a university setting and bringing that into the industry setting. So, and that's, that's where they came and gelled together as a team of experts um, and started working uh, globally on different SAP projects. And how big was the team? Not very big. Uh, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was only about 30 to 40 people. Um, but they always worked in groups of three. So they had somebody, a designer and a uh, design thinker. Um, they had somebody who had product knowledge um, and, and, uh, uh, and business knowledge, as well as somebody who brought the technology aspects in. So we really tried to encapsulate the business technology uh, and design aspects in each of those projects. This sounds quite fascinating, especially given the scale. I mean, you have a company of 100,000 people or more, and you have a team about 30 that should train them all. Yeah. So how does that work out? I think nowadays design thinking is quite widespread inside the organization. But what did it take to get from this initial team of 30 to 100 or 1,000 or even 10,000 people? Yes, well, honestly, um, the design service team got disbanded several years later in part because they were not large enough to really drive solutions themselves. Um, so they would really be part of the initial uh, idea finding or the problem statements, but were not able to stay through the entire long 
um, solution process, uh, so which can take several years when you're talking about complex software. Um, so at some point, uh, they got disbanded, and some people actually went so far to say it was a failed attempt. But something very interesting happened after that, and this is also where I had joined SAP and lived through this uh, firsthand. Those teams that had worked with the DST um, got inspired. It was one of those amazing things that I see so often when it comes to design thinking. It's very personal, and it's something that uh, the people who had applied it through the help of the DST started wanting to work in this way themselves. And it really became somewhat of a grassroot viral sort of adoption that went through SAP. And I also got inspired by the DST and quite early on became one of these DT uh, catalysts. And how did you get in contact with the DST? I mean, you were somewhere in Germany, right? I was running a, uh, managing a design team for a new product line that was having some uh, early um, early stage issues. So the DST actually got um, put upon us as a team that needed some help in the eyes of Hasso. So that was my personal first contact with the DST. And uh, how did you help them? <laughs> Or they, they helped us by, by, by actually really stopping our solution thinking and really allowing us and in some ways through the power of coming from the, the board um, to step back from our problem that we're trying to solve and feeling like we were very pressured to solve that problem as quickly as, problem, as possible um, to really step back and understand the problem first. And that was a real valuable insight um, as well as some of those intangibles that really brought the people together in a much more human way. So we started actually having fun with the project where before they, uh, they joined us, we felt very pressured that we had to get something done very quickly. So was this from design thinking or was this maybe from less pressure from management? Probably a little bit of both. But we see now, uh, 12 years later within SAP, where design thinking has taken root in probably all of our departments worldwide, um, that these two aspects seem to happen pretty, pretty often. Uh, we're creating environments where design thinking, not just from the methods, but also from the way people work together, really brings a different dynamic in. Um, and I think that's what, that's that aha effect that I also Uh, experienced early on with working with the DST. So how was your first encounter with the DST? Were you skeptical or were you totally amazed by working with this team or? Um, honestly, I think we were all pretty annoyed. Um, you, you, you don't like to have uh, the, the, one of your board of directors pointing a finger at your pro project and saying, I'm going to help you fix that, right? You, it hits, it's a hit to your ego, and you, you think you have it all under control. And given the DST as a support or as an external team to tell you what to do better, initially felt like, uh, um, like an affront. And the people and the way that they approached our team and our project and our problem was definitely not like that. So I would say those initial barriers um, were very quickly dismissed as we got to know each other and work together on a personal level. So what convinced you to actually then start working with them? That's easy. Um, it was fun. 
Okay. You know, and, and, and I know this is not something we often talk about in a business context, but it really is fun to work in a way that feels natural, that everybody gets um, a voice, everybody's expertise gets a, a role to play, and it just, and it flows. But this is not, this does not happen automatically. It doesn't happen in the typical um, circumstances and environments that corporates uh, usually build up, which is much more, uh, if you will, sterile, business-like, um, uh, governed by processes. And this was a much more yeah, fun and, and exchange that really uh, kind of blossomed into something and solutions that we initially had not even started to look at as a team. And this is that aha moment that I spoke about earlier that we see in the eyes of almost everybody when they're doing um, design thinking for the first time. So kind of an aha that you actually can work differently and you can work in a way that is actually fun and engaging and where everybody's really feel like they're contributing and they're part of the team. Absolutely. So you got actually bitten by the design thinking bug. And <laughs> yeah. what happened next? So um, what I was not the only person. There were actually quite a number of us throughout different departments within SAP that had been working with the DST that got inspired, that wanted to work in this way and started to learn on our own. Um, additionally, Hasso didn't stop with the DST. He really made it a priority from the board level down um, that design thinking was going to be adapted and adopted by our organization to become more uh, efficient, more effective, and also more dynamic and versatile and agile. Um, and he really saw this as one of the predominant uh, approaches that would make SAP successful. So we both had that viral effect where many people on a grass grassroots level started working together in this design thinking approach. Plus, we had the top-down management support uh, and attention, which really helped. So this sounds like a dream setup. Were there also some kings or did it really work out smoothly from there? It's never like that. So I think there's that great term, stumbling towards success. And uh, SAP has also done its share of stumbling. Um, and I think it's important to also share some of those stories. Um, I think we fell into a, at one point while trying to uh, implement design thinking at SAP, we ran into the typical problem of scale. Um, all of a sudden, we were, it's starting to take hold, and it's, it was something that um, people wanted to now spread very, very quickly and very globally. And we started becoming more like a process, a checklist. Um, that, you know, oh, yes, of course, I did design thinking in my project. And yes, I did one training. So now I am a design thinker um, where you're losing the true value behind this this um, KPI driven type of effect where just because you're trying to show scale. Um, and that was a huge problem for SAP and I think most big companies. Um, so that was one thing that we had to stop um, and and. Uh, I mean, to some degree, we have to deal with scale, but we had to take our time in doing it. Um, so when you look at the design thinkers within our product organization, for one example, um, most of them now have years of experience of applying design thinking in their context and in their projects. Um, we have an accepted approach where you cannot be a 
um, a senior design thinker without having at least three full projects under your belt. Um, so we're really we step back from the check checkbox thinking and tried very much to also look at what sort of value and what sort of quality are we trying to trying to achieve. I think that's quite challenging to actually measure what somebody brings to it. So how do you do that without actually using checkboxes? Um, through outcomes. Uh, we're talking much more of an outcome thinking. Um, and, and that's also where we ran into a second problem. Um, I think in my story, I mentioned how we had that top-down support through Hasso and our board. We had the bottom-up uh, motivation, the grassroots uh, sort of, of, of adoption. But we, we missed something very important, and that was the messy middle. Um, that was our middle management that had not yet been taken into, into the boat, had, been, had not been um, really brought up to speed, both on one hand, what is the value of design thinking, of changing their approach, and on the second, other hand, what is the role of management in design thinking? If we're doing a lot more iteration, if we're doing a lot more uh, teamwork where the team decides the direction and the approach, what is the, the classic manager and their role? So that caused, uh, that slowed us down immensely for a while. And we had to set up new trainings and new leadership uh, styles for our management on all levels so that they also understand what is expected of them. What are some of the right KPIs that those managers should be looking for in their design thinking projects? Um, and for instance, we have to train our managers, and we're still in the process of doing this, of, of um, when, when a team or a member, team member comes to you with a, a wonderful solution, I've got this great idea as a manager to first ask, great idea, but first explain to me what the problem is that you're solving. You know? And before somebody is, uh, uh, comes to you with uh, a solution, even if they have followed other steps, you say, that's great, show me the other 10 that you threw away. Um, and, and that is starting to change the role of management to become mentors um, of the process. They don't have to be facilitators, they don't have to be design thinkers as far as the methods go, but they have to be able to be aware of what phase is the team in right now, what is required, and what are some, some of the leading questions that management can use to make sure that those projects stay on track. So you had design thinking pretty much going viral all over the organization, it seems. Yeah. So did this result in something that everybody was knowing how to do, or did you have different approaches all over the company? We, we actually went through a period of time where exactly that was happening. Um, people were starting to learn and apply in different ways. Um, and pretty quickly, the organizations for themselves started creating a, a certain path um, to identify which projects made sense to use design thinking um, exclusively, where could somebody learn the skills who's motivated to do so, how do project teams uh, work in, in, uh, in, in new spaces. All these things started getting organized within the different departments within SAP. So what you see now, 12 years later, when you look at SAP, design thinking is implemented from our HR 
um, group to our sales, to our development, and so on. But each one has a slightly different structure on how they do it, how they train people. And I think a good example of that is our sales organization has over 700 trained design thinking facilitators worldwide. How big is the organization? Ooh, I think about 23,000. And I think that number is growing because this is also a new way that our sales are starting to really inter, uh, to exchange with our customers to really understand what sort of challenges uh, our customers are going through and starting to facilitate the, the dialogue between our customers and SAP in a new way. But then, of course, when, when products get used, implemented, um, our custom development organization, our standard development organization start also uh, catch, you know, taking that ball, those discussion that, they, that the salespeople have started with our customers and creating and co-creating new products using design thinking. So it's, it's a pretty uh, smooth effect, but it's not always the exact same thing. So where our pre-sales and our sales might be using methods that are a little bit more early stage empathy building, um, our development organization uses methods that really help translate that into an agile software development world. So are design thinking and agile the main ways of working, or do you also use some other things like, for example, Lean Startup? Yeah, well, we, um, I think... Uh, lean and Scrum in Agile software is, of course, uh, the the uh, the standard approach that we use. But that is really helping to do something efficiently, um, where we've uh, supplemented that with design thinking to make sure that the thing that we're creating efficiently is the right thing. And that's really where the design thinking approach merges extremely well and complements the agile world. So given that such a large part of the organization has been affected by design thinking, do you actually have a problem convincing others about doing it or getting support uh, for working in this kind of way? Um, no, absolutely not. I would say at this point, everybody, uh, every single one of our 77,000 employees has been touched by design thinking. If not practically in a project themselves, um, at least through the basic trainings that we offer so that there's a basic knowledge of what what it is that we're talking about when we use the word design thinking. Um, and so I think it's, it's no longer uh, a foreign body within SAP, something strange, uh, but it's already become uh, come to the point where everybody has accepted it. So you are now responsible to work with a lot of clients and supporting them in using design thinking. Um, are they actually as convinced as your colleagues are, or do you have to convince them like the DST needed to convince you? Well, I think convincing is is a hard word. I think it's much more of just like it happened within SAP, it's about experiencing design and design thinking. It's something hard to conceptualize, but something that you feel the first time you start using it. So to put it this way, about four years ago, uh, the Design and Co-Innovation Center, uh, so my team was set up in order to start working with customers on their problems uh, and their challenges applying our design thinking approach, but also bringing design talent to the table, which is usually in short supply in most big companies. Um, and the reason we were doing this was because SAP has gotten very good at creating 
um, very stable, very user-friendly standard software. But standard software only brings you to a certain, uh, certain point. Every customer has their own uh, processes. They have their own micro-vertical challenges. They have their own country uh, regulations that they're dealing with. And so our customers and our partners have to take our standard software and, and adapt it. And if they are adapting and configuring our software in a non-user-centered way, the users at the very end will still be unhappy with that software. So it became vital also to SAP that the value that we're investing in design really gets felt by the end users of our product. In order to do that, we really had to bring our customers along on the journey of design and design thinking. And that's what this team was set up to do. So that makes me wonder what's behind the curtain. It seems like a logical step to take, but was it really that logical, that easy? I mean, did they come to you and say like, Toby, we really need to do this and just please do it for us? <laughs> Um, well, it, it actually did start somewhere along that line. Um, so this is not just about myself, but also uh, my manager and um, uh, my, my team. Um, we started off quite small. We started off with just a few of us with the board of directors giving us some headcount and some budget and this challenge that I just, uh, just mentioned. And I mean, it's pretty a quite interesting situation to have to step back and say, okay, that's quite a quite a challenge. Um, I'm interested in taking it on, but I'm not quite sure how to approach it. So we took a a pretty novel way of doing that, and what we ended up doing was hiring uh, quite rapidly about a team that's now about 74 people, um, and this is a highly diverse skill set, um, primarily designers and design thinkers, as well as mixed with uh, program managers and, and uh, business consultants. And we gave them the challenge. We really said, hey, this is the big sticky challenge that we're, we've been given. And what are some ideas? How are some approaches that we can, we can move forward and start interacting differently with our customers? And out of that came a whole plethora of different Uh, ideas. So one of one of the ideas was the App House concept. Um, the App House is really a space, a creative space, which we invite uh, customers into to really start experiencing design and design thinking for the first time. Um, it was just one of the ideas that came out of the team, was driven by the team, and now has gone global where we've started opening up design uh, thinking and customer-focused app houses in Palo Alto, in Germany, in Berlin, in Korea, and we even have customers and partners starting to open up their own app houses as well. So it's been a pretty interesting ride, but this is just one of multiple ways where our team has self-defined and, and prototyped different approaches of how we can start bringing design and design thinking outside the four walls of SAP. So how can I picture the app house? Is it like a co-working space for people from SAP and your clients? Or what does it look like? I think if, if you have seen any sort of the typical design uh, lofts from classic design companies, 
um, that's a good place to start. Um, we took a little bit step further than that, however, where if you see creative spaces, very often it's a concept led by a architect. Um, it's, it's based on some other models, perhaps other companies that have done something similar, and it's somebody who, who sets up a space and then invites people into it. We took a slightly different approach. We said, okay, we're a great group of designers. We can design our own space. And we started actually um, creating this space, designing it with our facility management um, to represent the team. And I think that's an important differentiation because what you see when you come into the app house is not just the open space not just the the type of uh, um, furniture that you would expect in a more creative setting rather than a than a, a typical office setting but it's something that really represents the team the team uh, created the furniture the the team uh, brought their sewing machines in to create some curtains. Um, coming into the space feels very much like being invited into somebody's home because it very much represents the team. And the team has represents our goal to bring design outside. This almost sounds like I want to switch offices. <laughs> we get that comment pretty often, I have to admit. <laughs> so what other initiatives were there? You said the App House was just one, right? Yeah. So another initiative is in general, uh, when we do projects, the types of projects we do, we're really trying to look for those customers in those situations where we can tell a good story around design. Um, and a lot of times those projects come out of the initiatives of the team members themselves. Because uh, in, in the modern working place, it's not just about what comes to you and the things that you have to um, solve due to the work environment, but it also has a lot to do with your intrinsic motivators. Um, and as a team, as a good example, we have multiple people in the team that are extremely socially active, that take their vacations to, to help uh, uh, less fortunate children in Africa or such. And these are people that also come, oh, that also looked for opportunities where we could apply design and design thinking to complex situations and make a good story out of it to really show the power of design thinking in a variety of settings. So one of those was a, um, a project called Ethics, it was self-motivated out of the team, which really went into, so first with the University of Heidelberg, the medical school, and looking at how to bring medical um, care to women in sub-Sahara Africa, so in Botswana and Kenya. And this is a big challenge because these are women that usually have to walk two to three days to get to the nearest facility to get some blood taken and the test sent off, and they walk back home. By the time that this test comes back or the test results, it's extremely difficult to find that woman again um, and provide them with the appropriate care. So this was a project that where we applied design thinking principles, really went with the University of Heidelberg, with SAP that provided the technology and the infrastructure, but really went to Africa and worked with the people and the healthcare professionals there to solve that problem. So it really seems like you allow your employees to bring their whole self to the organization, their ambitions and their ideas. Absolutely. 
So when it comes to your clients, how do you empathize with them when it comes to working with SAP? So there are two very common challenges. The first one being that people come to SAP and our customers come to us expecting the typical supplier type of relationship. I will give you my problem, you will work on it, and come back to me with a solution. Um, where the very first challenge is to tell people, no, we work together on the problem. We can't fully understand the problem um, unless you allow us to work with you, to really speak with your end users, uh, to be in the environment um, that you're trying to, to, uh, to solve. And the second challenge is the fact that uh, a lot of people are very solution-oriented. So, of course, they, they have a problem in their head, they already have a solution, and they think, we're going to go to SAP and ask them to build this solution. And the very first thing that we often have to do is put on the brakes and uh, really talk with the customer through their understanding of the problem. And very often by doing so, and also bringing their actual end users into that discussion, um, they realize that the problem they're trying to solve is not always the one that they think they are. Um, and that's an extremely valuable statement because this uh, repeats itself in almost every single one of our customer projects, is that realization that we first have to jointly understand the problem also through the end user's eyes before we start talking about finding creative solutions to that problem. Um, and that's also not something that comes naturally, I think, to most big companies. I actually read about that in an article on IDEO. I think they had the same problem initially that hardly anybody understood what the value of it was and why it should be done. So nobody really wanted to spend resources on it. So how do you go about that? How do you convince others that there is actually value in this? You're going to laugh at this answer, but initially, as we were still growing the team, we were sim the simple fact that we were small and needed time to grow as a team and also in global locations um, meant that we could not take every project that came to us. So one of the projects, so we only took projects that uh, where we spoke about the, the need for user research, the need for co-innovation through the eyes of the end user. Um, and those companies that were willing to do it, uh, those were the projects we did. So as, as, simple, as simple as that. Um, what happened after that, as we were growing and we were able to take on more and more projects, and at this point, about three and a half years later, we've done a, a roughly 450 customer projects. But through that slow growth and that being able to be selective about which projects we take, um, we created a portfolio of success cases, you know, really being able to show the business value of our approach and the necessity and the, and the um, inspiration and the insights that come through user research. And when you can talk to businesses on that level with clear use cases and clear value statements, um, it made all our future engagements much easier. Now I'm getting really curious about how this portfolio looks like, because it's oftentimes very hard to prove a causation that says, well, we did design thinking and we are so much better off now. So what do you tell people? There, there are multiple ways of approaching this, depending on who your stakeholder is. Um, we have also available online a value calculator, a UX value calculator that really speaks much more to the dollars and cents um, that a company can experience by investing in good design and good design also meaning good research. 
um, that has much more to do with the uh, the benefits in time and money in uh, in the sense of efficiency gain, um, in the sense of requiring less less training uh, if you have intuitive software. Um, but the intransparent benefits, the ones that really are those, like I said, aha moments um, of, of reanalyzing what a problem is in order to come to a better solution, we bring that across through two main ways. The first one is storytelling. So we really have quite a number of uh, prominent companies that speak on our behalf. And hearing this through the voice of other customers um, is a very strong factor. Um, additionally, we also um, very much start off a new, uh, a new engagement uh, with a light approach uh, without going you know, full throttle uh, in with, with uh, large user research um, to start with a small uh, design thinking workshop to really get the stakeholders together. And very often that is enough to get people to understand and to, to feel the approach that we're trying to bring them. This is interesting because I think some people in large organizations still have problems convincing their managers and others in the organization to actually do design thinking. Do you think this is something that can be still argued about? Well, I think it is not something that companies can ignore any longer. I think there's enough hard facts out there showing that companies that invest in design that have adopted design thinking as a way of working um, are more valuable and more successful also on the open market. Um, I think a lot of the business uh, heads that we talk with, and so we talk very often with the CEOs and CIOs of big companies, they don't argue that fact anymore. And they no longer think of design as just part of an end product. But they don't know exactly what it means to them. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know what sort of investment this is. They don't know what sort of change process will come their way if they want to move in this direction. And that's where we have to take them along the journey with us. So what recommendation would you give to somebody that just starts out with design thinking, especially if their top management or CIO is not fully on board with this? So what can they tell them or how could they convince them to really get design thinking going inside the organization? So there's so many different ways of doing it, but if I had to boil it down to probably two, one of them being have you have to convince with facts. So always starting with a concrete project that you have solved um, using design thinking, where you have, by solving it, um, shown perhaps if you wish to use the word innovation, um, but also getting feedback from the team that was involved um, on how they, they perceived that working environment. These are all extremely strong factors in promoting to your internal stakeholders um, the value of this approach. So that really starting with a concrete uh, pilot and showing uh, both the business as well as the intangible um, benefits is, is, a, is an important place to start. And the second is we've all been there. We know what it's like to be that um, inspired person in an organization that just doesn't seem to get it quite yet. Um, and it's so important not to lose that momentum, that motivation. And for myself, I found it within SAP by finding those other colleagues 
that were just as inspired who were in your down times of being uh, working in a different way than you wish to work, you always have somebody that's that's helping you stand back up on your feet and still try the approach that you feel is is uh, is better. Additionally, I think what we're seeing is the rise of design networks. So it's not just within one company, but also companies are starting to speak to one another about this whole topic of design, implementing design thinking, the cultural change that's involved with that. And it's an amazing effect to see that that support network is starting to to really grow in new dimensions. So we're starting to see companies talking to one another about how did they do it, about saying, hey, you know, that's an interesting thing. Can you come talk to my management about your experience to convince them? And then that same company would go back to the first company and exchange their experiences as well. So it becomes a very reciprocal relationship. So do you go out to other companies and talk about design thinking? Very often. We About five years ago, we started an informal community called the Design at Business community that really focuses exactly on this, of a medium where companies come together several times a year uh, to exchange that sort of uh, um, learning, also those stories, but also to create artifacts that you can take home with you and continue the conversation with your own stakeholders. So that's been growing for the last five years also now internationally, and uh, seems to be working quite well. I would love to share a link in the show notes, so if you could send that later, that would be awesome. But let's get back to the story, and what happens after you convince the company about design thinking? I think it's the convincing is the hard part, and sometimes that really means putting some skin in the game. And maybe I can give one example of that. We worked with a, with a big company, which uh, shall not be named, um, that paid SAP almost 3 million euro to create a type of integrated web store. Um, and this, this web store was wonderful, right? You, you can purchase, um, in this case, hair care products online. Um, it would be processed, the billing, the production, the shipping, all happened uh, fluidly. Um, and this company uh, rolled it out globally, and they found that only three, uh, three hair care stylists worldwide were using it. And they were, of course, extremely frustrated. Um, went straight to SAP's board and say, we just paid 3 million euros for this and nobody wants to use it. And they all say it's bad usability. And so this was one of those projects that we got, <clears throat> how do you say, delegated uh, to our team. And it really literally took only one phone call. Um, we had the head of IT of this company plus the head of that business unit that did all the hair care products uh, as well as the partner that had implemented the solution. And we asked the simple question, did you ever talk to your end users, to the customers that are supposed to use this? And IT shrugged and said, well, we got a list of, of uh, requirements from the business unit and the business unit said, well, I've been doing this for years. I know exactly what my customers need, right? So we all laugh. This is a typical situation. <laughs> um, and we said, okay, guys, on our dime, so we will pay to fly you. Uh, we flew them the following week to London to actually meet with their own 
end users. And we went to different um, uh, chic uh, hairstylists in London. And these people came back with really big eyes. And they realized it had very little to do with software, their issues, but it had a lot to do with not understanding their, their own customers. For instance, most of these hair salons were using Macintosh computers uh, instead of uh, Windows. So it's an easy fix, but if you don't know it, they set up the, the web store uh, in a way that was Safari unfriendly. So quite easy to fix. The other thing was they found out that it took to be registered as a new user uh, in order to purchase something almost five days to be, uh, to be, yes, where we're all used to in Amazon, it takes about 30 seconds, if, if even that. But by looking at where, why, it turns out that this company had decided on their own due to some sort of internal bureaucracy that one person in this entire chain had to approve every single new user. And that person only worked 50% of their time. So again, by stepping back, looking at it from a different perspective, not just looking at it uh, in solution thinking, um, we helped that company really become more aware of some of the things uh, and some of the uh, skills that they're lacking in their organization. And it, this went so far as now we're helping them as well as other companies starting to establish design and design thinking practices on their own. <laughs> so when you do that, when you start to engage with them, I guess there are a lot of challenges that you have to face. I mean, not only you with them, but also challenges that they have to face internally. So how do you help them? Um, again, I think we have to be very careful that this does not become a one-size-fits-all, this is the one way to apply design thinking sort of, sort of approach. So we have to very much work with the customer in their environment, respecting their culture and their skills, and also respecting the challenges they have, and help them understand the principles of design thinking, of iteration, of uh, cross-functional teams, of, of user-centered Uh, uh, design and help them adapt that according to their to their culture. Um, again, like I mentioned before, the very first step is usually doing several pilot projects to really inspire and to show that that this investment and this investment not just in a financial sense but also in a change sense really um, brings value. And after that, um, it's important that we create just like we did it within SAP, a group of inspired coaches, design thinkers that start inspiring others and that also have a community of their own within that company. This sounds pretty much straightforward, although you said that there is no one recipe, which makes me wonder what were some of the challenges and how did you confront them and what did you learn from them? I think one of the challenges that, that we had by bringing this outside of SAP's walls was honestly the space we were trying to work in. Um, very often, we, we didn't think about this when we, when we started doing, uh, going out into projects, but very often we were in environments where the type of intense teamwork and collaboration and communication was very, very hard to arrange, even if we had 
the people there because the space was not uh, flexible enough, wasn't large enough. Perhaps it was too loud. Perhaps it was in a very quiet corner where we couldn't really have a dialogue. Perhaps it's a meeting room, which you can only stay there for two hours maximum and you had to take everything off the wall again. So space and the, and the memory um, that space has became an important part of, of part of our engagement. So when we're going and bringing this to our customers, one of the things that we do very often uh, talk about is finding the right space where we can do such a project jointly with a customer. Um, another challenge was probably trying to stand up and run on your own too soon. And I think um, uh, we love it when we can inspire other people and other companies in in that uh, design thinking and that that spirit, um, but at the same time, we learn that we have to stay with them quite a while to make sure that they, uh, if they fall, as we all do when we're practicing something new, that we're there to to help them back on their feet, to learn from that experience, um, and and to stay with it, because as we said earlier on, one of the things that happens very often when you're an individual. Um, catalyst is the momentum and the uh, and your own inspiration can sometimes falter, and so it's important for us to to keep in touch and also uh, stay open to to supporting that change, uh, which can take years depending on how large the company is. So this sounds like you also face a lot of resistance and possibly frustration. How do you deal with that personally? Uh, with good humor, no. I would say because of the team. Uh, we have such an open, flexible team um, that each of us has can come back after getting a couple knocks um, in our projects. And we always have the support of each other. And I think having a healthy team environment uh, to come back to is always extremely important. I know that helps me every day. Thanks for sharing these learnings. As the last question, I wonder, where do you think this is going? I mean, design thinking, innovation, large organizations. What do you think is coming up next? Honestly, I think we're just on the cusp of a bigger change. Um, I think design thinking has finally made it into the mainstream, where we see even, especially in the U.S., it's being taught at business schools, it's being used in elementary schools, um, it is starting to change how people um, work together. I think one of the harder things is to is to approach, uh, bring design thinking into global enterprise. However, global enterprises, uh, I mean, we work with companies with 400,000 employees. There are so many people working worldwide in huge corporations that due to their size, due to their success, due to their uh, global nature, have been approaching uh, innovation, approaching uh, common work through a more Tayloristic approach, meaning we're going to break this down, we're going to segment, we're going to specialize, we're going to make things into um, reproducible patterns so that we can do the same thing faster, better, lower cost. And honestly, I think, first of all, from a human perspective, that's something we need to change. And second of all, I think when we're talking innovation, we're also talking about innovating on a high 
highly complex networked level. This is no longer a challenge that can be solved by an individual or a team, sometimes not even by one company. It really has to be done um, very holistically because we're talking about worldwide challenges that are, are sometimes difficult alone to understand uh, and, and not just to solve. So I think design thinking is an approach that first has the more human-centered way that makes for these millions of people working in large enterprises, makes their lives more fun, more enjoyable, but at the same time also helps companies be adaptable and also start innovating around these really high, highly complex new challenges that the world is offering us every day. Um, so I really see that that's the next bastion, the next step that design thinking has to take. When you say design thinking has to take, do you think that what we currently know and do is enough to do this? I think it's a good start to get us in the door. But if my experience at SAP has taught me anything, um, it's always about learning, trying, getting better. Um, and I don't think there will ever be a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Um, and I think when I also look at my team, what sort of new ideas, new methods, new approaches they have to use with each new project because we're put into new contexts. Um, so no, I don't think we can just rest on our laurels and say we already have enough information now. Um, I think it's going to always be a challenge to stay awake enough to start adapting and learning to use that in even more complex and global situations. So is the message here, keep on learning? Absolutely. Um, and keep on having fun, because I think um, that's, the, that's the lifeblood of, of a good dynamic team. They're learning, they're having fun, they support each other. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the new ideas and motivations come from. I couldn't agree more, so thank you for some wonderful last words. I wish you all the best for bringing design thinking to other large organizations, and thanks again for sharing some of the lessons learned from doing design thinking at SAP and in a business-to-business -business setting. Thank you. That was it. Thank you for listening to episode number two. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tobias Haug. If you have any comments or ideas, feel free to leave them under the show notes. You can find them under www.innovatebydesign.net slash episode 2.